Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Um, Because we have a YouTube presence and a Facebook presence, my name is Barbara, and I am one of the pastors here. Um, and even though I'm leaving staff, you know, I'm, I'm going to pastor your butt whether you like it or not. So that'll get me thrown out, won't it? I think when your time is short, you take a lot of risks. <laughs> Marcy says, no, you took them even before that, Barb. Okay. So you guys, we are in the third Sunday of three weeks teaching about Jesus and women. Don't we have a slide that says Jesus and women? I thought we did. I know that there's one online somewhere. Uh, Mary, our beloved Miss Mary, our pastor Mary, uh, kicked us off with the Samaritan woman at the well beautifully. She gave us a whole different frame for that story that many of us have heard so many times. And maybe some of us have really only heard for the first time. Last week, James Bustamante, he shared with us his passionate love for the story of the woman with the issue of blood from the Gospel of Mark, as well as some amazing insights into that story also. And today, we are going to look together at a story that we find uh, that actually begins in John chapter 7, verse 53 ends in chapter 8, verse 11, and it is also a familiar story, I believe, or not, and it is the Pharisees, Jesus, and the woman caught in adultery. So, having said that, let's start and let's talk about holiness. Let's do a little bit of theological work together, and this, uh, what I'm going to be saying uh, was mostly conceived in my mind because I read an article by a man uh, by the name of Ryan Schellenberg, who is a Mennonite theologian. So, uh, but I have taken all his words and changed them, and now they're mine. So, Jesus and the religious leaders in that period of this world, they conflicted. Did you know that? They were always arguing with each other, and they conflicted. One of the biggest reasons was that they had two opposing views on holiness. In the Old Testament, we see a God who is jealous and intolerant, striking down the impure and disgusted by human abominations. Think lots of laws, lots of rules. In the New Testament, yeah, I want to go back and I want to say think fear. Because it's scary to live like that. In the New Testament, Jesus' father, the same God as the one in the Old Testament, is merciful and forgiving. Jesus is critical of the hypocritical, holier-than-thou attitudes that he sees all around him by the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. He tells us, because this is written down in Matthew 7, 1, he tells us, judge not, that ye not be judged. I use the King James Version. Isn't that amazing, you guys? Jesus rejects excluding the unholy from the community of God's people. Jesus was about truly holy lives, 
lives set apart by the pursuit of justice, the pursuit of mercy and faithfulness. As I was thinking about this, that old song came into my mind, and I'm going to read you some of the words. It's, holiness is your life in me, making me clean by your blood. I know you are perfect in holiness. You, God, you, Jesus, you are the Holy One. And it's your life in me that sets me free and that makes me holy. What a whole different way of looking at it, because it is. It's the blood of Jesus that covers my sin. Uh-oh. See, I'm going to go to the wrong page, and then you're going to... Then I'm going to get nervous when I get to that page. Okay. Holiness, as understood by the religious leaders around Jesus, had instead become a way to assert social status, marginalize the poor, and exclude the sinners. And Jesus' call to be merciful as God is merciful in Luke 6, verse 36, does not at all displace God's call for Israel, a nation, to be holy. Instead, he reclaims that, and he refocuses it. Let me say that again. He reclaims God's holiness, and he refocuses it. Rather than rejecting holiness, then, Jesus redefines it. Being a holy community means being a people set apart by unique mercifulness. I have a quote by Marcus Borg. Whereas Old Testament purity laws divide and exclude, compassion unites and includes. So to say it in totally barbed words, we are not set apart as holy when we set others apart. We need Jesus, who calls us in our churches to leave behind religious and moralistic rigidity and to refocus on our calling to be communities whose identity is characterized by grace, by forgiveness, and by justice. And if you don't believe me, open up your Bible to Matthew 23. And who will not revert to the religiosity that keeps us from our high calling, from living out our Jesus identity, learning to live and love like Jesus people, Jesus' identity as just, merciful, and faithful people of God. So now we're going to read our scripture. Now we're going to go to the story itself. And here it is. In, yeah, this is my favorite version. It's in the voice. Um, read along with me, but you get to read silently. The time came for everyone to go home. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He awoke early in the morning to return to the temple. When he arrived, the people surrounded him. So he sat down and began to teach them. While he was teaching, the scribes and Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they stood her before Jesus. The Pharisees were talking amongst themselves. They were murmuring. You know how you've seen them do? You know, they stand in corners and they mumble and they look at you. They give you that one-eyed, you're wrong, I'm right look. Um, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses says in the law that we are to kill such women by stoning 
What do you say about it? I'm going to ask you to think trap here. This was all set up as a test for Jesus. His answers would give them grounds to accuse him of crimes against Moses' law. Jesus bent over and wrote something in the dirt with his finger. They persisted in badgering Jesus. So he stood up straight. And then Jesus said, Let the first stone be thrown by the one among you who has not sinned. What if in my life, what if in your life, all three of the players exist? And I'm, I'm, there was probably more than one Pharisee, but I'm kind of grouping them into one of the players. What if the Pharisees, also known as the religious leaders, the law keepers, the certain ones, what if they're us? What if they exist in me? What if I am a Pharisee? about the woman caught in sin, her adultery? Am I her? Am I he? It might not be adultery. What is my sin? Which one of my sins? And can we see ourselves like Jesus, Christ-like? Again, choosing to live and love like Jesus. Can we see ourselves as the Jesus who encounters this woman, a sinner, and stops the horrific act of stoning? Because justice and faithfulness and love cause us to act. I read a book by Carlos Rodriguez. He's a Puerto Rican pastor, blogger, and writer. And the name of the book was called, and still is, <laughs> Drop the Stones. In it, he said everything I want to say today about this woman caught in her sin, about this Jesus who showed mercy and forgiveness, and about the religious keepers of the law who wanted to trap Jesus and perhaps kill the woman that they were wanting him to judge. And if he didn't judge her, then they wanted to kill him. Murder was in their hearts. And in so many ways, because of that book, what you guys are hearing from me today is kind of a book report. So we can all just say thank you, Carlos. I'm going to read right now a quote by Shane Claiborne. Those who follow Jesus should attract the same people Jesus attracted and frustrate the same people Jesus frustrated. Wow. Remember Luke 15, Jesus receives sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, the worst of the worst, and not only does he receive them, but he, he eats with them. Food was the problem. The religious hated, the religious hated that he ate with sinners because eating with someone, the table, was the ultimate love language, the godliest way to show love and affection and welcome from one part to another. And then Rachel Held, Heaven, Held Evans, she says this, this is what God's kingdom is like, a bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry, because they said yes. 
And there's always room for more. So much of what Jesus did involved this food thing, which I love personally. He turned water into wine. He offered his, it was red wine, by the way, just if any of you ever wondered about that. He offered his body and blood as an eternal meal. He gathered disciples and others around multiple eating opportunities, and he multiplied loaves and fishes several times for thousands of people. He invited himself to dinner at the house of a tax collector, and he made breakfast for his disciples even after he had hung on the cross and was resurrected. In his culture, food was one of the ultimate ways of expressing acceptance. And you know, that's kind of stayed with us, hasn't it? Still today, food is a way that we accept one another. And Jesus consistently invited people to the table, not just serving them food, but being food, looking at them, seeing them, loving them. He did not judge them. He enjoyed their company. He delighted in each and every each and every one of them. A question that Carlos poses in his book is, and this is a quote, what are we doing differently from Jesus that makes the tax collectors and sinners of our time not want to be near us or hear us? And what was it about Jesus? What was it about Jesus that made the most immoral people drawn, (laughs) drawn to his presence and drawn to his teachings and drawn to the holiness that he could bestow with his eyes and his love. So this story is happening in about A.D. 27. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were thieves, traitors, They collected more taxes than was required. They were disowned by their family. They were hated by everyone, Romans and Jews and Gentiles alike. They were hated by their own people for sure. Others might speak of themselves as sinners. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not a tax collector sinner. Let's think about that a little bit. Let's insert your personal sin that you really hate. You know, the one that you're not, the one that you can always absolve yourself from. Well, I may be this, but I'm not that. It seems like every generation has had one despicable and despised category of sin. And those categories kind of change throughout the years and the church history. Um, And we, we people, we human beings have always loved comparing our sins as less than that greater sin, which makes us feel good, right? A little self-righteous? Yeah, I, I like feeling that way. Whatever the greater sin might be, and the pattern continues to this day, um, the LGBTQ community, abortion pro-choice crowd, Muslims, fundamentalists, liberals, the religious right. Can't we all name the sin or the sinners, worse than we are. Superiority is what we're looking for. Our self-righteousness allows us to get away with that. And in a crazy way, the church has perpetrated this. 
um, because here in Western church world, we say we love Jesus, but it seems as if we hate his ways. Only, this is the crazy thing, this is the paradox of a lover who gives us our holiness. Every time we use religion to draw a line that keeps people out, Jesus is with the people on the other side of that line. <laughs> so we're not just losing the people we're trying to keep out. We're losing Jesus in the process. And that is a quote attributed to Hugh L. Hollowell, Reverend Hugh. Um, so Jesus engaged not only tax collectors and other sinners because what I'm missing here, and I don't want to miss, is he also engaged the religious. He loved the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the religious community, as much as he loved the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He actually didn't see any difference between all of them. He died for the hypocrisy of the men who condemned the woman as much as he died for the woman. He died for me, and he died for you whatever our sin might be. One more quote. Judah Smith. God doesn't share our rating system. To him, all sin is equally evil, and all sinners are equally lovable. We are the ones who are experts at judging others. And so we stone one another. I've told the story many times of, of the fact that I was born out of wedlock in a little German town. And not only was my father never married to my mother, but he was an American after a war. And we were, we were those bastard kids from the enemy in so many ways. And in that town, um, every time we walked into the wall, which is where we had to go to buy the groceries, we were stoned. We were not stoned with stones. We were stoned with looks of the eyes and whispers behind hands and turning aways of faces and not, no invitations to anybody's table. That's how we were stoned. I have stoned people. I've stoned some of my own children with the words that I have spoken to them with the way my heart has been hard, when it could have been softened if I would have allowed Jesus to make me holy. <laughs> but I wanted to be right instead. Let me repeat, we are each experts at judging others. And the way of stoning begins in a heart that has turned to stone. What is it that God says he's going to give us? A heart of flesh. and he will touch our heart until it softens if we let him. A life free from stoning starts with the mouth. A mouth free from stoning starts in the heart, and a heart free from stoning starts in the past. What happened in your past 
what made you who you are? Do you realize how important your story is? Do you realize how important it is to know who you are, who your parents were, your grandparents, how you got to where you are today, why you think the way you do? How did you get hurt? How were you neglected? How were you stoned? Who hurt you so badly that your heart now assumes the worst of the other, whoever the other is? Who broke your trust? Who stole your hope? I'm going to quote James Baldwin, an amazing black man, writer, who actually left the United States because of the racial divide in this country. He was, you know, he was uh, a young man in a time when there was a lot of lynchings and a lot of, a lot of bad things happening in this country. And he, he wrote this. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their pain. Are we willing to deal with our pain? I've been in this program. I'm in year four of a, what I thought might be a one-year program. <laughs> but I'm still there because I'm still dealing with my pain. And one of the realizations that I've come to is that my heart of stone is thawing slowly. And that when I don't even know I'm throwing stones, I'm throwing them. But Jesus wants something so different for me. And he is willing to hold my heart in his hot hands of love until it thaws completely. And then, of course, when it does thaw completely, <laughs> I'm going to be in his presence because I make up. And if you know me at all, you've heard me say this like maybe a trillion times, that the work of healing is the work of a lifetime. And it's a work we all need to be doing, each and every one of us. Can we identify even with the self-righteousness in ourselves that keeps us from wanting to be healed? Because even there, some of us, <laughs> and all of us at times, because I'm going to raise my hand to this as well, we've just really just wanted to be right. Somehow, in the moment, that feels better. But this is the part where we need to understand that righteousness is not about rightness. It is about crazy relationship with the God who loves us so crazily that he throws our sins far away, he forgives us everything, and he makes us holy in the process. We are radically loved. Now, you know, I want to be loved like that. And I, I mean, I'll tell John all the time, could you love me just a little better, a little harder? Could you love me on the left side rather than on all those things that you say to make it be like perfect? And yet we serve a God who is perfect. We serve a Jesus who always calls us beloved, who never, who, he never sees, you know, that I've got wrinkles on my face. He always sees this beautiful child that he made that I imagine I'm going to return to one day. He, he holds nothing against me except his heart and his love. Adultery is a major sin. 
It is destructive to families and marriages and society. But it's only one of the 677 major sins in the Bible. I did not count. Someone counted for me. Okay, those sins, they run the gamut, you guys. They go from selfishness to fornication to murder to gossip to incest to greed to laziness to gluttony to not obeying your parents to being double-minded. Clearly, each of us is sinful. And that's actually the good news, (laughs) which is crazy. And in need of redemption... And the law proves our imperfection, but the gospel gave us Jesus Christ, who gets to call us. Well, we get to hear him say, beloved. The woman who was caught in adultery was brought by the Pharisees to be stoned alone. They who were the experts in the law and keeping the law were actually breaking the law because Leviticus 20.10 says, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Both. Notice who was missing, the man. So I'm going to be speaking to the women just briefly. But the men can listen. I'm not going to ask you to leave the room. I'm, I'm not bitter, Mary. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, today, about 49.6% of the population of the world is female. And in so many places and countries, discrimination, prejudice, and misogyny are still the norm. Bigger in certain places, smaller in others, like the United States, but still there. But Jesus has always, always, forever and eternally seen us differently. Women were the only financial supporters named by name in the Bible by Jesus. They served meals, they preached, they healed the sick, and they accompanied him on his journeys. Jesus addressed women directly and in public. And according to biblical scholar Walter Wink, I want that name, Jesus violated the mores of his times in every single encounter with women That was recorded in the Gospels. Every single time he violated a law by his treatment, by his his beloved women. He taught that women were equal to men in God's eyes. They could be forgiven and receive grace. They could be his personal followers and full participants in the kingdom. He chose women to make bold statements. Ugh and claims of what the kingdom on earth actually meant. The kingdom of the here and the not yet. A kingdom of tension, a kingdom of waiting for shalom when Christ returns and all will be made whole again. Jesus left a legacy for us women. Mary Magdalene, the first person to preach the resurrection when she ran from an empty tomb and having seen Jesus resurrected and shouted, Jesus is alive. A woman shouted that. She was given, the woman, this woman was given the ability to proclaim the ultimate message of our faith, 
This is the message of Christianity. This is the message of Easter Sunday. He is alive. A woman said it first. Amazing. You know, maybe Jesus was trying to tell us something. <laughs> the image of God is incomplete without the compassion, the strength, and dare I say the radiance of women. A.B. Simpson, who was a holiness preacher in the 1800s, I believe, and I could have that wrong, said this, the heart of Christ is not only the heart of a man, but has in it also the tenderness and gentleness of a woman. Jesus was not a man in the rigid sense of manhood as distinct from womanhood, but as the son of man, he was the complete head of all humanity. And that fits so well with Genesis. In my image, I created them male and female. It fits so well. Jesus is always saying to us, he's always been saying it, and he's saying it now. He, she, who is free of sin, throw the first stone. It should flummox us. It flummoxed the Pharisees. They, they had to stand there and go, uh, <laughs> okay, I guess I got to go because I am not free of sin. For 2,000 years, we have wanted Jesus to throw stones at the people that are on the opposite side of us, of our belief systems, of our ways, of what we think is right, of what we think is godly. But guess what? He never has and he never will. Jesus chose this particular woman that the Pharisees brought to him to test him. This woman caught in the act of adultery. He chose her to proclaim that mercy triumphs over justice and judgment. But justice was actually served because saving the woman from being killed was an act of justice. And although she was caught in adultery, she was also, like every one of us, created in the image of God. Her sins could be forgiven. She was made worthy, just like we are. All 100% of us, by the way, 100% of us are created in the image of God. Mercy triumphs over justice, James 2.13. And in the Bible, there are two kinds of justice. There's retributive justice, which is like an eye for an eye. You hurt me, I'll hurt you kind of justice. And then there is restorative justice. And that's always the type of justice that Jesus practiced. It is restoring what has been lost, what has been broken. It's healing what has been hurt. We restore. That's our task as his beloved. So this woman was his, his sister, his daughter, his mother. She was his beloved. And he was well pleased in her in the same way that the father was pleased about Jesus. And when Jesus asks us, you and me, where are they? Has no one condemned you? About whatever sin you might be wrestling with in this moment, we 
along with the woman caught in adultery, we can reply, no one is accusing me. And then he says, with the softest, sweetest voice, and I imagine him looking me in the eyes and loving me in the same way he always has done, and saying, neither do I. Neither do I. You're my beloved. Go in peace. So let's go back to the beginning and talk a little more theology. Jesus Christ is perfect. That's it. I think that's the best theology I've ever heard. Jesus Christ is perfect. We're not, and we don't have to be. But crazily, in the church especially, well, and outside of the church as well, we have modified him to accommodate our current views instead of allowing him to modify our current views about anything and everything. He is the good news. He delivers good news, especially to bad people like me, like you, like the woman in the story. So I've got three questions. Just think about it. Think about them. When you're the one, the man, the woman, caught in your particular brand of sin, Will you choose to listen to the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus and go and sin no more to the best of your ability? And when you're tempted to stone and judge, would you instead lay down your stones for the beautiful journey of humility that Jesus asks us to be on with him. And when we are invited again and again and again and again to learn to live and love like Jesus, will we be him to the broken and the hurting that we see all around us? They're sitting next to you right now. They'll be outside. They'll be at the grocery store. They'll be at school. So we're going to make a shift now. We're going to shift to the communion table, which is our version of the table, isn't it? The table that all are invited to here in this place when we gather together. The one to which each and every sinner, yeah, and if you're serving communion, you can come forward right now and the band can come up. Every one of us, each and every sinner has been invited to be seen and loved by Jesus. And he's going to give us exactly what it is we need. Do we need forgiveness and mercy today? Do we need our heart to be made soft today? We are accepting, by coming to the table, we are accepting an invitation to hold on to this moment 
with one another and savor it with our minds and our hearts to delight in the simplicity and joy of just coming to the table together. Every time we eat the bitter herbs and acknowledge that we are sinners, sinners invited to come to the table through Jesus' sacrificial love. He refreshes us and he strengthens us and he sees us and he says again and again, this bread is my body, broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. This cup is my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. And he also says, this table is mine. But there's room. <laughs> there's room for each of you to eat and drink because these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can all just come forward and receive as you wish. Thank you. <laughs>